Part One, Chapter Seven of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Chancellorsville and Gettysburg by Abner Doubleday. Part One, Chapter Seven The Battle of the Third of May. The Eleventh Corps were now sent to the extreme left of the line to reorganize. There they were sheltered behind the strong works thrown up by Humphrey's division, and were not so liable to be attacked. The new line laid out by Hooker's order was on a low ridge perpendicular to the Plank Road, and opposite and at right angles to the right of Slocum's front. It was strongly supported by the artillery of the 3rd, 12th, and part of the 11th Corps, massed under Captain Best on the heights at Fairview, in the rear and to the left. Sickles was ordered to fall back to it at dawn of day, Burney to lead the way, and Whipple, Graham's brigade, to bring up the rear. The plank road ran through the centre of the position, Burney being on the left, and Berry on the right, with Whipple's division on a short line in rear, as a reserve. French's division of Couch's corps was posted on Berry's right, the other division, that of Hancock, remained between Mott Run and Chancellorsville. When the movement began, Burney's division, on the left of Whipple's, occupied the high ground at Hazel Grove, facing the Plank Road, Graham's brigade being on the extreme left. This was a very aggressive position, since it took every column that advanced against Sickles' new line directly in flank, and therefore it was indispensable for the rebel commander to capture Hazel Grove before he advanced against the main body of the Third Corps, which held the Plank Road. This hill was not quite so high as that at Fairview, but our artillery on it had great range, and the post should have been maintained at all hazards. The cavalry who had so ably defended it fell back, in obedience to orders, to the Chancellorsville House, to support the batteries in that vicinity, and I think one regiment was sent to report to Sedgwick. Whipple commenced the movement by sending off his artillery and that of Burney. Graham's brigade was the rearguard. Its retreat was covered by the fire of Huntington's battery on the right. The moment the enemy saw that Graham was retiring, Archer's brigade of A. P. Hill's division charged, attained the top of the hill, and succeeded in capturing four guns. Elated by his success, Archer pressed forward against Huntington's battery, but was rudely repulsed, for Sickles opened on him also with the battery from Fairview. He managed to hold the four guns until Dole's brigade of Rhodes' division came to his aid. The two took the hill, for Whipple had no instructions to defend it. He retired in perfect order to the new position assigned him. Huntington's battery, supported by two regiments sent out by Sickles, covered the retreat, but suffered considerable loss in doing so, as one regiment was withdrawn and the other gave way. Ward's brigade was then sent to the right, and Heyman's brigade held in reserve. Stuart, who was now in command of Jackson's corps, saw at a glance the immense importance of this capture, and did not delay a moment in crowning the hill with thirty pieces of artillery, which soon began to play with fatal effect upon our troops below. Upon Chancellorsville, and upon the crest occupied by Slocum, which had enfiladed, and as McLaw's batteries also enfiladed Slocum's line from the opposite side, it seems almost miraculous that he was able to hold it at all. 
Simultaneously with the attack against Hazel Grove came a fierce onslaught on that part of Sickles' line to the left of the road, accompanied by fierce yells and cries of, "'Remember Jackson!' a watchword which it was supposed would excite the rebels to strenuous efforts to avenge the fatal wound of their great leader. It was handsomely met, and driven back by Mott's brigade, which had come up from the ford, and now held the front on that part of the line. A brilliant counter-charge by the 5th and 7th New Jersey captured many prisoners in colours. Sickles' men fought with great determination, but being assailed by infantry in front, and battered almost in flank by the artillery posted at Hazel Grove, the line was manifestly untenable. After an obstinate contest, the men fell back to the second line, which was but partially fortified, and soon after to the third line, which was more strongly entrenched, and which they held to the close of the fight. McGowan's, Lane's, and Heth's brigades of A. P. Hill's division charged resolutely over this line also, but they suffered heavily from Best's guns at Fairview, and were driven back by Colonel Franklin's and Colonel Bowman's brigades of Whipple's division, which made an effective counter-charge. Whipple's other brigade, that of Graham, had been sent to relieve one of Slocum's brigades on the left of the line, which was out of ammunition. It held its position there for two hours. While this attack was taking place on the left of the road, Pender's and Thomas's brigades, also of Hill's division, charged over the works on the right, but when the others retreated they were left without support, and were compelled to retire also. They reformed, however, tried it again, and once more succeeded in holding temporary possession of part of the line, but were soon driven out again. French's division of Couch's corps was now brought up, and Carroll's brigade struck the rebels on the left, and doubled them back on the centre, capturing a great many prisoners, and confusing and rendering abortive Hill's attack in front. Hill sent for his reserves to come up, and three rebel brigades were thrown against Carroll, who was supported by the remainder of French's division and a brigade from Humphrey's division of Meade's corps, and French's flank movement was checked. Then another front attack was organized by the enemy, under cover of their artillery at Hazel Grove, and Nichols, Iverson's, and O'Neill's brigades charged over everything, even up to Best's batteries at Fairview, which they captured. But our men rallied, and drove them headlong down the hill, back to the first line Sickles had occupied at daylight. It was a combat of giants, a tremendous struggle between patriotism on the one hand, and vengeance on the other. French now tried to follow up this advantage by again pressing against the Confederate left, but it was reinforced by still another brigade, and he could make no progress. The struggle increased in violence. The rebels were determined to break through our lines, and our men were equally determined not to give way. Well might de Trobriand style it a mad and desperate battle. Mahone said afterward, the Federals fought like devils at Chancellorsville. Again Rhodes and Hill's divisions renewed the attempt, and were temporarily successful, and again was the bleeding remnant of their forces flung back in disorder. Dole's and Ramseur's brigades of Rhodes' division managed to pass up the ravine to the right of Slocum's works, and gain his right and rear, but were unsupported there, and Dole's was driven out by a concentrated artillery and musketry fire. 
Ramsur, who now found himself directly on Sickles' left flank, succeeded in holding on until the old Stonewall Brigade under Paxton came to his aid, and then they carried Fairview again, only to be driven out as the others had been. The battle had now lasted several hours, and the troops engaged, as well as the artillery, were almost out of ammunition. There should have been some staff officer specially charged with this subject, but there seemed to be no one who could give orders in relation to it. The last line of our works was finally taken by the enemy, who, having succeeded in driving off the 3rd Maryland of the Twelfth Corps, on Berry's left, entered near the road and enfiladed the line to the right and left. Sickles sent Ward's brigade to take the place of the 3rd Maryland, but it did not reach the position assigned it in time, the enemy being already in possession. In attempting to remedy this disaster, Berry was killed, and his successor, General Mott, was wounded. The command then devolved upon General Revere, who, probably considering further contest hopeless, led his men out of the action without authority, an offence for which he was subsequently tried and dismissed the service. As the cannon cartridges gave out, the enemy brought up numerous batteries, under Colonel Carter, in close proximity to Fairview, and soon overcame all resistance in that direction, driving the troops and guns from the plain. Anderson now made a junction with Stuart, and their combined efforts drove the Third Corps and Williams' division of the Twelfth Corps back, leaving only Geary and Hancock to maintain the struggle. Geary was without support, but he still fought on. He faced two regiments west, at right angles to his original line, and by the aid of his artillery held on for an hour longer, his right brigade facing south, west, and north. The Third Corps left their last position at Chancellorsville slowly and sullenly. Heyman's brigade, not far from the Chancellorsville house, finding the enemy a good deal disorganized, and coming forward in a languid and inefficient manner, turned, by Sickles' direction, and charged, capturing several hundred prisoners and several colors, and relieving Graham, who was now holding on with the bayonet, from a most perilous flank attack, enabling him to withdraw in good order. Sickles himself was soon after injured by a spent shot of piece of shell, which struck his waist-belt. His corps and French's division had lost five thousand out of twenty-two thousand. Our front gradually melted away and passed to the new line in rear, through Humphrey's division of the Fifth Corps, which was posted about half a mile north of the Chancellorsville House, in the edge of the thicket, to cover the retreat. At last only indomitable Hancock remained, fighting McLaws with his front line, and keeping back Stuart and Anderson with his rear line. The enemy, Jackson's corps, showed little disposition to follow up their success. The fact is, these veterans were about fought out, and became almost inert. They did not, at the last, even press Hancock, who was still strong in artillery, and he withdrew his main body in good order, losing, however, the 27th Connecticut Regiment, which was posted at the apex of his line on the south, and was not brought back in time, in consequence of the failure of a subordinate officer to carry out his orders. Before Hancock left, his line was taken in reverse, and he was obliged to throw back part of his force to the left to resist Anderson, who was trying to force the passage of Mott Run. 
The line in that direction was firmly held by Colonel Miles of the 61st New York, who was shot through the body while encouraging his men to defend the position. Stuart's command had lost 7,500 in his attack, and it could hardly have resisted a fresh force if it had been thrown in. General William Hayes, of the Second Corps, who was taken prisoner, says they were worn out, and Rhodes admits in his report that Jackson's veterans clung to their entrenchments, and that Ramseur and others who passed them urged them to go forward in vain. Before the close of the action Hooker was importuned for reinforcements, but to no avail. Perhaps he intended to send them, for about this time he rushed out and made a passionate appeal to Geary's men to charge and retake the works they had lost, promising to aid them by throwing in a heavy force on the enemy's left flank. At this appeal the exhausted troops put their caps on their bayonets, waved them aloft, and with loud cheers charged on the rebels and drove them out once more. But sixty guns opened upon them at close range with terrible effect. The promised reinforcements did not come, they were surrounded with ever-increasing enemies, and forced to give up everything and retreat. Stuart and Anderson then formed their lines on the south of, and parallel to, the Plank Road, facing north, and began to fortify the position. Had they been disposed to follow up the retreat closely, they would have been unable to do so, for now a new and terrible barrier intervened. The woods on each side of the Plank Road had been set on fire by the artillery, and the wounded and dying were burning in the flames without a possibility of rescuing them. Let us draw a veil over this scene, for it is pitiful to dwell upon it. There was no further change in Stuart's line until the close of the battle, but Anderson's division was soon after detached against Sedgwick. The new line taken up by the Union army was a semi-ellipse, with the left resting on the Rappahannock and the right on the Rapidan. Its centre was at Bullock's House, about three-fourths of a mile north of Chancellorsville. The approaches were well guarded with artillery, and the line partially entrenched. The enemy did not assail it. They made a reconnaissance in the afternoon, but Weed's artillery at the apex of the line was too strongly posted to be forced and Lee soon found other employment for his troops, for Sedgwick was approaching to attack his rear. In the history of lost empires we almost invariably find that the cause of their final overthrow on the battlefield may be traced to the violation of one military principle, which is that the attempt to overpower a central force of converging columns is almost always fatal to the assailants for a force in the centre, by the virtue of its position, has nearly doubled the strength of one on the circumference. Yet this is the first mistake made by every tyro in generalship. A strong blow can be given by a sledge-hammer, but if we divide it into twenty small hammers, the blows will necessarily be scattering and uncertain. Let us suppose an army holds the junction of six roads. It seems theoretically possible that different detachments encircling it, by all attacking at the same time, must confuse and overpower it. But in practice the idea is rarely realized, for no two routes are precisely alike, the columns never move simultaneously, and therefore never arrive at the same time. Some of this is due to the character of the commanders. One man is full of dash, and goes forward at once, 
another is timid, or at least overcautious, and advances slowly. A third stops to recall some outlying detachments, or to make elaborate preparations. The result is, the outer army has lost its strength and is always beaten in detail. One portion is sure to be defeated before the others arrive. We shall have occasion to refer to this principle again, in reference to the Battle of Gettysburg. The history of our own war shows that an attack against the front and rear of a force is not necessarily fatal. Baird's division at Chickamauga defended itself successfully against an attack of this kind, and Hancock faced his division both ways at Chancellorsville and repelled every attempt to force his position. But Hooker thought otherwise. He felt certain that if Sedgwick assailed Lee in rear, while he advanced in front, the Confederate army was doomed. When the time came, however, to carry out this program, if we may use a homely simile borrowed from General de Peister, Hooker did not hold up his end of the log, and the whole weight fell upon Sedgwick. About this time a pillar of the Chancellorsville house was struck by a cannonball, and Hooker, who was leaning against it at the moment, was prostrated and severely injured. He revived in a few minutes, mounted his horse and rode to the rear, but it was some time before he turned over the command to Couch, who was second in rank. After this stroke he suffered a great deal from paroxysms of pain, and was manifestly unfit to give orders, although he soon resumed the command. The historian almost refuses to chronicle the startling fact that thirty-seven thousand men were kept out of the fight, most of whom had not fired a shot, and all of whom were eager to go in. The whole of the First Corps and three-fourths of the Fifth Corps had not been engaged. These, with five thousand of the Eleventh Corps, who desired to retrieve the disaster of the previous day, and were ready to advance, made a new army, which had it been used against Stuart's tired men, would necessarily have driven them off the field, for there were but twenty-six thousand of them when the fight commenced. To make the matter worse, a large part of this force, the First and Fifth Corps, stood with arms in their hands, as spectators, almost directly on the left flank of the enemy, so that their mere advance would have swept everything before it. Hancock, too, says that his men were fresh enough to go forward again. Couch succeeded to the command after Hooker was wounded, and made dispositions for the final stand around the Chancellorsville House, where the battle lasted some time longer, and where a battery of the Fifth Corps was sacrificed to cover the retreat of the troops. He did not, however, take the responsibility of renewing the contest with fresh troops, perhaps deterred by the fact that Anderson's and McLaws' divisions had now effected a junction with Stuart's corps, so that the chances were somewhat less favourable than they would have been had Sickles and French had been reinforced before the junction took place. He says, at the close of the action, that fifty guns posted to the right and front of the Chancellorsville House would have swept the enemy away. I think Hooker was beset with the idea of keeping back a large portion of his force to be used in case of emergency. It appears from a statement made by General Alexander S. Webb, who had made a daring personal reconnaissance of the enemy's movement, that he was present when Meade, acting on his, Webb's, representations, and speaking for himself and Reynolds, asked Hooker's permission to let the First and Fifth Corps take part in the battle. 
It is fair, however, to state that Hooker, having been injured and in great pain, was hardly accountable for his want of decision at this time. Indeed, General Tremaine, who was a colonel on Sickles' staff, says that Hooker did intend to use his reserve force as soon as the enemy were utterly exhausted. President Lincoln seems to have had a presentiment of what would occur, for his parting words to Hooker and Couch were, to use all the troops and not keep any back. I have stated that both Meade and Reynolds wished to put their corps in at the vital point, but were not allowed to do so. General Tremaine also states that, subsequently, when Hooker was suffering a paroxysm of pain, he was the bearer of a communication to him requesting reinforcements, which Hooker directed to be handed to General Meade, who was present, for his action. Meade would not take the responsibility thus offered him at so late a period in the action, though strongly urged to do so both by Tremaine and Colonel Dahlgren, without the express order of General Hooker, or the sanction of General Couch, who was his superior officer, and who was absent. Perhaps he was afraid that Hooker might resume the command at any moment, and leave him to shoulder the responsibility of any disaster that might occur, without giving him the credit in case of success. Still, he should have put the men in, for the success of the cause was above all personal considerations. A single division thrown in at this time would have retrieved the fortunes of the day. The delay of finding Couch would have been fatal, for immediate action was demanded. Reynolds, indeed, considered himself obliged to wait for orders, but was so desirous to go in that he directed me to send Colonel Stone's brigade forward to make a reconnaissance, in the hope the enemy would attack it, and thus bring on a fresh contest, for he intended to reinforce Stone with his whole corps. Stone went close enough to the rebels to overhear their conversation. He made a very successful reconnaissance, and brought back a number of prisoners, but as no hint was given him of the object of the movement, he did not bring on a fight. Had he received the slightest intimation that such was Reynolds' wish, he would not have hesitated a moment, for his reputation for dash and gallantry was inferior to none in the army. Sedgwick, being on the south side of the river, three miles below the town, was farther off than Hooker supposed and did not meet the expectations of the latter by brushing aside Early's nine thousand men from the fortified heights, and coming on in time to thunder on Lee's rear at daylight, and join hands with the main body at Chancellorsville. The Sixth Corps started soon after midnight to carry out the order. General John Newton's division led the way, with General Shaler's brigade in advance. They were somewhat delayed by a false alarm in rear, and by the enemy's pickets in front, but made their way steadily toward Fredericksburg. When they reached Hazel Run they found a considerable body of the enemy on the Bowling Green Road, at the bridge, in readiness to dispute the passage. Colonel Hamblin, who was in charge of Newton's skirmish line, left a few of his men to open an energetic fire in front, while he assembled the others and made a charge which took the bridge and secured the right-of-way. The command reached Fredericksburg about 3 a.m. As the atmosphere was very hazy, Newton found himself almost on the enemy before he knew it, near enough in fact to overhear their conversation. He fell back quickly to the town, and occupied the streets which were not swept by the fire from the works above. 
He then waited for daylight to enable him to reconnoitre the position in his front, previous to making an attack, and that was the hour Hooker had set for Sedgwick to join him in attacking Lee at Chancellorsville. As soon as it was light, Gibbon laid bridges, crossed over, and reported to Sedgwick with his division. At dawn, Newton deployed Wharton's brigade, and made a demonstration to develop the enemy's line. As the fortified heights commanded the plank road, by which Sedgwick was to advance, it became necessary to attack immediately. The plan of assault, which was devised by General Newton, and approved by General Sedgwick, was to attenuate the rebel force by attacking it on a wide front, so that it could not be strong anywhere, and to use the bayonet alone. Accordingly, Gibbon was directed to advance on the right, to turn their flank there, if possible, while Newton was to demonstrate against the centre, and how to act against the left. Newton deployed Wharton's brigade, opened fire along his front, and kept the enemy employed there. But Gibbon was unable to advance on the right, because a canal and a railway lay between him and the rebels, and they had taken up the flooring of the bridges over the latter. Howe did not succeed any better on the left, as in attempting to turn the first line of works, he encountered the fire of a second line, in rear, and in echelon to the first, which took him directly in flank. A concentrated artillery fire was brought to bear on Gibbon, early sent Hayes' brigade from Mary's Hill to meet him, and Wilcox's brigade came up from Banks' Ford for the same purpose, so that he was obliged to fall back. It was now ten a.m., and there was no time to be lost. General Warren, who was in camp to represent Hooker, urged an immediate assault. This advice was followed. Newton formed two columns of assault, and one deployed line in the centre, and how three deployed lines on the left. Colonel Johns, of the 7th Massachusetts, who was a graduate of West Point, led one of these columns directly against Mary's Hill, with two regiments of Eustace's brigade, supported by the other two regiments, deployed, while another column, consisting of two regiments under Colonel Spear, of the 61st Pennsylvania, supported by two regiments, the 82nd Pennsylvania and 67th New York, in column, under Colonel Shaler, was directed to act farther to the right, and the Light Division, under Colonel Burnham of the 5th Massachusetts, attached to Newton's command, was ordered to deploy on the left against the entrenchments at the base of the hill. Spears' column, advancing through a narrow gorge, was broken and enfiladed by the artillery, indeed almost literally swept away, and Spear himself was killed. Johns had an equally difficult task, for he was compelled to advance up a broken stony gulch swept by two rebel howitzers. The head of his column was twice broken, but he rallied it each time. He was then badly wounded, and there was a brief pause. But Colonel Walsh, of the 36th New York, rallied the men again, and they kept straight on over the works. Burnham, with his light brigade, captured the entrenchments below, which had been so fatal to our troops in the previous battle of Fredericksburg, and went into the works above with the others. Footnote. When Spears' column was broken, the 82nd Pennsylvania, under Colonel Bassett, came forward in support, but was crushed with the same fire. Colonel Shaler's remaining regiment, the 67th New York, followed by the remnant of Bassett's regiment, 
forced their way over the crest to the right of Colonel Johns's column. And footnote. The fortified heights on the right of Hazel Run, held by Barksdale's brigade, being now occupied by our troops, those to the left were necessarily taken in reverse, and therefore Sedgwick thought it useless to attack them in front. Howe, nevertheless, carried them gallantly, but with considerable loss of life. The coveted heights, which Burnside had been unable to take with his whole army, were in our possession, together with about a thousand prisoners, but the loss of the Sixth Corps was severe, for nearly a thousand men were killed, wounded, and missing in less than five minutes. The attack was over so soon that Early did not get back Hayes' brigade, which had been detached to oppose Gibbon, in time to assist in the defence. Newton says if there had been a hundred men on Mary's Hill, we could not have taken it. The rebel force was now divided, and thrown off toward Richmond in eccentric directions. All that remained for Sedgwick to do was to keep straight on the plank road toward Chancellorsville. Had he done so at once, he would have anticipated the enemy in taking possession of the strong position of Salem Church, and perhaps have captured Wilcox's and Hayes' brigades. But it was not intended by Providence that we should win this battle, which had been commenced by a boasting proclamation of what was to be accomplished, and obstacles were constantly occurring of the most unexpected character. After directing Gibbon to hold the town and cover the bridges there, Sedgwick, instead of pushing on, halted to reform his men, and sent back for Brooks' division, which was still at its old position three miles below Fredericksburg, to come up and take the advance. It was full three p.m. before the final start was made. This delay gave Hayes time to rejoin early by making a detour around the head of Sedgwick's column, and Wilcox took advantage of it to select a strong position at Guest's house, open fire with his artillery, and detain Sedgwick still longer. Wilcox then retreated toward the river road, but finding he was not pursued, and that Sedgwick was advancing with great caution, he turned back and occupied for a short time the toll-gate, half a mile from Salem Church, where McLaw's division was formed with one of Anderson's brigade on his left. When Sedgwick advanced, Wilcox fell back and joined the main body at the church. The other brigades of Anderson's were sent to hold the junction of the mine road and the river road. When the pursuit ceased, Early reassembled his command near Cox's house, and made immediate arrangements to retake the Fredericksburg Heights and demonstrate against Sedgwick's rear. McLaws formed his line about 2 p.m. in the strip of woods which runs along the low ridge at Salem Church, two brigades being posted on each side of the road about 300 yards back. Wilcox's brigade, when driven in, was directed to take post in the church and an adjacent schoolhouse, which were used as citadels. This was a strong position, for the rebels were sheltered by the woods, while our troops were forced to advance over an open country, cut up by ravines parallel to McLaws' front, which broke up their organization to some extent, and destroyed the elan of the attack. After a brief artillery contest, which soon ended, as the enemy were out of ammunition, Brooks' division went forward about 4 p.m. and made a gallant charge, in which Bartlett's brigade, aided by Wilston's battery, captured the buildings and drove in part of Wilcox's line. 
the New Jersey Brigade charged at the same time on his right, and Russell's Brigade on his left. Wilcox placed himself at the head of his reserve regiments, and, aided by Semmes' Brigade, made a fierce counter-charge. The combat for the schoolhouse raged with great fury, each party breaking the other's line and being broken in turn. Finally, after much desperate fighting, Bartlett was obliged to yield the position of the crest he had held, which was a key to the position, for as he was not strongly and promptly reinforced, as he should have been, his withdrawal from the church and schoolhouse made a gap which forced the other portions of the line to retreat, to avoid being taken in flank. Brooks was therefore driven back to the shelter of the guns at the toll-house. Then Newton's division came up and formed on his right, and part of Howe's division on the left. The Union artillery was well served and destructive, and as Newton had arrived, McLaws found his farther progress checked, and was glad to get back to the ridge. Bartlett's attack should have been deferred until Newton's division was near enough to support it. In that case, it would undoubtedly have succeeded. Sedgwick's left now rested on a point nearly a mile from Salem Church, while his right under Wheaton was somewhat advanced. Up to this time the fight had been between Brooks' division and McLaw's mixed command. It was now decided that a second attempt should be made by Newton's division, but Newton states that the design was abandoned because Howe's division, which was to support him, had gone into camp without orders, and was not immediately available. Before new arrangements could be made, darkness came on, and both armies bivouacked on the ground they occupied. Brooks' division in the assault just made had lost fifteen hundred men, and Sedgwick no longer felt confident of forcing his way alone through the obstacle that beset him. Nevertheless, trusting to the speedy and hearty cooperation of Hooker, he stood ready to renew the attempt on the morrow, although he foresaw the enemy would fortify their line during the night and make it truly formidable. When Wilcox left Banks forward to aid in the defense of Salem Church, General H. W. Benham, of the United States Engineer Corps, who commanded an engineer brigade there, threw over a bridge at Scott's Dam, about a mile below Banks Ford, to communicate with Sedgwick, enable him to retreat in case of disaster, and connect his headquarters with those of Hooker by telegraph. Hooker disapproved the laying of the bridges, which he thought superfluous, as Sedgwick's orders were to keep on to Chancellorsville. Warren took advantage of this new and short route to return to the main army, in order to give Hooker information as to Sedgwick's position. He promised to send back full instructions for the guidance of the latter. As soon as the bridge was laid, General J. T. Owens, with his brigade of the Second Corps, which had been guarding the ford, crossed over and reported to Sedgwick. Warren found Hooker in a deep sleep, and still suffering from the concussion that took place in the morning. He gathered from the little he did say that Sedgwick must rely upon himself, and not upon the main body for deliverance, and he so informed Sedgwick. End of chapter.